Welcome to the future of the administrative state, where we explore the virtues and vices of administrative power at a time when both right and left fear a growing executive branch. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy and your host for this podcast. Each week, we explore a different aspect of the administrative state and its political ramifications. Joining me today is Adam White. Adam is a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and teaches administrative law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. He also researches and writes about administrative law, regulation, the courts, and constitutionalism. Adam, it's a pleasure having you on. There's a lot of talk these days about the so-called administrative state. Uh, of course, conservatives and libertarians have for a long time criticized uh, what is often referred to as the regulatory state, the idea that the federal government imposes an excessive number of burdensome regulations on the businesses. Uh, but under Barack Obama, criticism took on a more constitutional tone uh, with worries about an expanded executive, uh, presidential power, and after the election of Donald Trump, liberals and progressives seem to be harboring similar fears about an expanded executive. But to complicate matters, we also have White House chief strategist Steve Bannon, who said that one of the three verticals, quote unquote, of the Trump administration is the deconstruction of the administrative state. The third broadly line of work is what is deconstruction of the administrative state. And if you... Adam, what exactly is the administrative state uh, from a legal or constitutional perspective, and why are we talking about it so much today? Well, that's a very big question. Uh, people talk about the administrative state. They might mean it in a couple of ways. The, the, in the narrow sense, the administrative state uh, might reflect just the sum total of federal agencies that govern us on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, small agencies to large agencies, agencies with immensely consequential laws that they, they enact through a, a rulemaking process, things like the net neutrality rules or the EPA's massive greenhouse gas rules. So when you talk about the administrative state, you might just mean the agencies themselves. But in a, more, in a broader sense, the term the administrative state could be thought of as reflecting just the general approach to governance in the United States an approach in which, by and large, the federal laws that govern us on a day-to-day -day basis come not from Congress with the President's signature, but from this massive set of agencies that day after day promulgate hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of pages of regulations year in and year out. In that latter sense, the administrative state can be thought of as an alternative to the Constitution's framers' vision of Republican self-governance, governance through the elected branches of government under the rule of law. Um, I tend to use the term in both ways. Sometimes when I talk about the administrative state, I'm talking about the agencies and the people that run them. Uh, but oftentimes when I talk about the administrative state, I try to put it in this broader sense of, of how we govern ourselves. We've gone from a Republican dem or Democratic state in the lower R and lower D sense to an administrative state. Before delving deeper into these bigger picture constitutional and, and uh, even philosophical questions, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what these agencies are, some examples, and, and how they operate, and, and, and also where they originate from? Where, where do they come from? How did these agencies come to be? Well, the last part is the easiest part to answer. They all come from Congress. Uh, Congress creates agencies. They can't create themselves. 
president can't create agencies, at least not the agencies that can that can make law. So Congress passes statutes that creates an agency and vests it with immense powers. And Congress has been doing this for a very long time. I don't want to make it sound as though this is of recent vintage. We often trace the modern administrative state back to, say, the New Deal era, where uh, the Roosevelt administration created things like the Securities and Exchange Commission and the National Labor Relations Board. But it goes further back than that. At the early 20th century, you had the Federal Trade Commission. In the late 19th century, you had the Interstate Commerce Commission. And even back into the pre-Civil War era, you saw Congress creating things like the Steamboat uh, Inspection Service. Uh, and in fact, the, one of the very first things the very first Congress did was create the original cabinet departments, the Treasury Department, the State Department, the Department of War, and so on. And so this really begins with the very beginning of our country our, under our constitutional government. But it expands and it builds upon itself. Uh, and in recent years, I think there's been a sense among not just scholars and authors, at least on the right, but also among a lot of voters uh, that the modern administrative state has taken on a new, uh, I don't know how you describe it, a new size, a new level of power. I like to say that the modern administrative state increasingly has a, a distinct gravitational pull on our politics. But in terms of what the agencies are, uh, they tend to be a bureaucracy uh, directed by either a single leader, as in the case of, say, the, Env the Environmental Protection Agency, which is run by the EPA administrator, or they can be set up as a multi-member commission, like the Federal Communications Commission, which has, has five members. Uh, sometimes the leadership of an agency or commission can be fired by the president at will. Sometimes the statute uh, that created the agency purports to put some limits on the president's ability to fire the head of the agency. Uh, sometimes these agencies, they usually are, uh, are, are funded by Congress, but some agencies aren't. There's newer agencies like consume, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that, that funds itself by simply uh, claiming hundreds of millions of dollars from the Federal Reserve. Other agencies like the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or the FCC are funded in part by user fees. So agencies come in, in sort of all shapes and sizes. Um, it's hard to really put a single definition across them all. But by and large, I'd say the most important factors is that they are, they are insulated either by law or by practice from direct political control. And they are, they, they are intended to reflect uh, some measure of technical or technocratic governance that's insulated from the, from the, the ordinary forces of politics. Sometimes people refer to the administrative state as the fourth branch of government. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the relationship of these agencies to the branches of government and how that looks from a constitutional or separation of powers perspective? Right. Well, that's a very famous line from the early 20th century. Somebody who was criticizing this new, that new generation of independent agencies, agencies that were independent from the president, uh, denounced them as the, the headless fourth branch, uh, this mob of bureaucracy that wasn't directly accountable to the president. And so that's one important feature of a lot of these agencies is that, as I mentioned earlier, the, the president can't just directly fire, uh, say, the uh, the head or, or the, the members of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, he has to have certain justifications under the law to fire them. Uh, so they, some agencies are insulated a bit from the president. Other agencies 
agencies like the EPA are directly within the president's control and the White House to some extent oversees the agency's rulemaking processes. Uh, the agencies are supposed to be accountable to Congress in a couple of ways. Uh, first, Congress is the one that created the agencies uh, and, 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 and wrote the laws that empower and limit the agencies. Uh, Congress um, uh, funds a lot of these agencies through the appropriations power, the power of the purse. Congress has a role oftentimes in helping to appoint the leadership of these agencies. The president appoints the leaders of these agencies, but for a number of them, uh, for most of them, Congress, uh, I'm sorry, the Senate has to consent, has to give advice and consent to the president's nominee. Um, and then finally, the courts, oh, and I should add that Congress also oversees the agencies in their day-to-day -day business by, by having hearings, uh, by sending questions to the agencies and demanding responses. So Congress has these looser oversight powers as well. And then finally, the courts, uh, in, in deciding legal questions that, that arise in cases coming from, from the agencies, uh, the courts have an oversight power over these agencies. I would say, though, that one of, the, one of the criticisms of the modern administrative state is that those relationships that I just outlined, the relationships between the agencies and the president, the Congress, and the courts, are increasingly mitigated. Uh, most importantly, I think, is the reduction of real oversight power of Congress, especially when Congress isn't legislating as much, Congress isn't uh, funding these agencies in the same way that it used to. The agencies are increasingly hostile to congressional oversight. Uh, Congress really has given away a lot of its own power to oversee these agencies. But at the same time, the courts in the last 30, 30 years to 70 years or more, depending on, on how you look at it, uh, the courts have become increasingly deferential. This is the so-called Chevron deference. That's one of the doctrines. There's Chevron deference by which the courts defer oftentimes to an agency's legal interpretations. That's an example of the courts really relaxing their own oversight of, uh, of the agencies. In other instances, the court's review of agencies is relaxed because Congress designed it that way. Congress wrote statutes that set very low standards of review for judicial review of agency action. And so the, the courts really are a very limited check to on, on, on agencies. I don't want to say they're totally powerless. That's not true at all. The courts oftentimes are a strong check on the agencies. But by and large, the courts take a very deferential approach to, to the agency's actions. So on the one hand, you have this the deference uh, of the courts to the agencies, and then on the other, in some cases, a sort of independence uh, from the, the president. Is that right? How, how does that work from a constitutional perspective? Sort of stepping back, you know, for uh, those of us who aren't in the weeds of these legal debates, how can a, uh, an executive agency be independent of the president? argument in the courts and among legal scholars as to whether it's unconstitutional for Congress to put limits on the president's power to fire the head of a department, like, uh, say, the, the, the members of the Federal uh, Trade Commission. Um, and there's a line of Supreme Court cases that, that tries to, to draw a line allowing um, the president to have total power to fire 
uh, certain subsets of, of agency heads or agency officers, while at the same time the court allows Congress to put some limits on the president's power to fire um, agency uh, heads or other officers. So, for example, the Supreme Court affirmed Congress's power to limit the president's uh, power to fire the independent counsel in the 1990s and 1980s. Um, in the real seminal case, in the 1930s, the Supreme Court said it was okay for Congress to limit uh, the president's power to fire members of the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, those, those precedents remain somewhat controversial. Um, I'm a little more agnostic towards them. I think that the, the standards that the court set in those cases are still very lenient, and they could leave a lot of room for the president to exercise power to, to remove officers. Uh, but it is a very contested uh, aspect of administrative law and constitutional law. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit more about how regulation comes about and, and what regulation is precisely legally. How does it differ from the kinds of uh, legislation that comes directly from Congress? Right. Well, um, we, we've all seen the old schoolhouse rock, how, how a bill becomes a law. <laughs> exactly. passed by both houses of Congress and signed by the president. Um, how a regulation comes into being is quite simpler. Saturday Night Live had a pretty funny spoof about this a few years ago, uh, saying how a regulation or executive order just sort of happens. And it does just sort of happen. I mean, in the case of a regulation, uh, the basic way that this works under the Administrative Procedure Act is that the agency announces that it's proposing a new regulation. It leaves an opportunity for the public to comment on that proposal. And then the agency collects those comments, responds to them, uh, sometimes thoroughly, sometimes less thoroughly, and then finalizes that regulation. Uh, it's published in the Federal Register, which is a sort of daily report from the, from the regulatory agencies. And then it's codified in what's called the Code of Federal Regulations, which is sort of a uh, sort of it's sort of like the, the U.S. code, uh, the statutes, except it's a, it's a compendium of just federal regulations. And so it's very easy for an agency to make one of these regulations. Again, it's just the notice and comment process. Propose a rule, accept comments, respond to the comments, and finalize the rule. And then it goes into effect. Can you talk a little bit about the ways that this process has evolved over time? So there's, for example, been criticism, um, on the right at least, of the way the Obama administration used this process to implement their domestic agenda. I've got a pen to take executive actions where Congress won't, and I've got a telephone to rally folks around the country uh, on this mission. Well, that's right. I, the Obama administration was pretty innovative in a, in a few ways. The Obama administration it sure, surely didn't invent the idea of regulation, but what it did was it took a few existing tools at its disposal and really used them in innovative ways. Uh, the most controversial ways were uh, the president's and his, and his agency's use of, uh, of, of procedures outside of the notice and comment rulemaking process to make real policy changes. The, the most famous example of that was the president's immigration policy, which was just sort of announced. I uh, didn't go through notice and comment rule rulemaking process, and the president bragged uh, to an audience. He said, I changed the law. I just changed the law, which was remarkable, considering that he didn't sign legislation. He didn't even have his agency go through the very, very relaxed standards of notice and comment rulemaking. He just had them sort of announce a new policy. Uh, but I think the most I think what's really brought this to the forefront, though, it's not those sorts of procedural questions. It's the substance of the rules. The Obama administration uh, 
produced some astonishingly uh, significant rules, uh, by which I mean they really did try to fundamentally change the way that the basic infrastructure of American society, uh, the economy, our culture, and our communications uh, are regulated. Uh, there was the net neutrality rule by which the FCC asserted unprecedented control over broadband internet, the basic sort of backbone in this day and age of modern American uh, communications. Through things like the EPA's Clean Power Plan, the, the Obama administration tried to unilaterally change the way that uh, we, we, we keep the lights on and keep our, our, our businesses running, um, we keep our economy going. These sorts of rules, which the Obama administration uh, undertook in lieu of legislation from Congress, right? They were citing for, for the Clean Power Plan, they were the EPA's Clean Power Plan. They were invoking you know, the Clean Air Act of the 1970s and the 1990s for the the net neutrality rules. The FCC was invoking the Communications Act of 1934. It was a very radical, radical change in the way in which uh, our basic economy uh, and our communications in our society would be regulated. And I think that was a bit of a wake-up call for the public at large, that the most important questions of how we were governing ourselves had simply been taken away from the legislative sphere, let alone from the states, and were being placed in these agencies uh, under President uh, Obama's direction. And the FCC is an interesting example because even though it's a nominally independent agency, um, uh, the, the FCC's ultimate, uh, ultimate net neutrality policy reflected the things that President Obama had been demanding from them, showing that, that perhaps the, um, the concerns about presidential management of, of the independent agencies had been, had been overstated. Mm -hmm. it, it seems as though this uh, so-called fourth branch of government, it, it allows on the one hand uh, members of Congress to delegate is the charitable word a lot of the lawmaking uh, duties that they have uh, to someone else and so that they don't they're not accountable then to those laws and similarly uh, you seem to be suggesting that even the president has this kind of wiggle room where uh, an agenda can be enacted through an agency and yet because of the relative independence of that agency the president is insulated from any political blowback from what that agenda might be years ago in an essay in the journal National Affairs where I pointed out that uh, President Obama's National Labor Relations Board had attempted to, to impose significant uh, new law on Boeing for its uh, it, 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 Boeing's attempt to bring production facilities down to South Carolina. Uh, and, and the White House sort of disclaimed any responsibility for that decision, saying that this was an independent agency. So it was pretty remarkable. Congress at the same time uh, also was allowed to dodge accountability. It, it, as you said, the Congress delegates immense power to these agencies, and then sort of sits back and acts as little more than what you might call the ombudsman for the administrative state. Uh, they're able to, to, to take credit for things like clean air and clean water because of these very broad statutes, like the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. But then those same congressmen can turn around anytime an agency exercises that immense power in a way that's politically unpalatable, and Congress can blame the agency and not take any responsibility itself. Maybe ombudsman for the administrative state should be the new congressional slogan. listening to the future of the administrative state. 
I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy. I'm speaking today with Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Adam has been explaining the ins and outs of the administrative state from a legal and constitutional perspective. We've also been discussing the innovative ways in which the Obama administration leveraged administrative power to implement aspects of its domestic agenda. We've obviously been alluding to a lot of problems and issues here, but uh, what, what in your view are the, what is the key or what are the key uh, problems with where the administrative state stands today? number of sort of hyper-technical solutions, right? We need to fix the court's Chevron deference doctrine, or we need more uh, procedural requirements for the agencies to jump through before passing these rules. But honestly, I do think we need to start with first principles. Uh, I recently co-authored a, a, short, a short monograph for national affairs called um, uh, Policy Reforms for an Accountable Administrative State. I co-wrote it with the Manhattan Institute's Orrin Cass and R Street Institute's Kevin Kosar. And what we tried to do was to tackle the problem of the administrative state from the vantage point of each of the three constitutional branches. Right? What are the things that the president can do to assert more control over these agencies? What are the things that Congress can do? And what are the things that the courts can do? And I think that reflected this basic diagnosis that the first thing we need to do is to re-recognize the fact that all three branches of our constitutional government have a stake in this. All three of them need to assert greater power in their own ways over these administrative agencies. And even while we often think of the agencies as being, first and foremost, a, a tool of executive power, uh, I think we need to think of these agencies as exercising a number of powers that fall within the ambit of all three of the branches. And all three of the branches have a responsibility for this. There really isn't a silver, a single silver bullet in solving the problem of the administrative state. It's going to require concerted and long-term uh, thoughtful action by all three branches of government. And of course, there are people on the left, for, for instance, and, and also perhaps some people on the right who, who might argue that this kind of expanded executive authority is is necessary and important. But there are also those who might take a more deflationary approach and point to the history that you mentioned, um, namely that some kind of executive delegation or congressional delegation to the executive. These sorts of things have been around in our country's history and as society and our economy uh, have grown more complex. Uh, we need these agencies and we need them to have a certain amount of power. What would you say to that kind of argument? Is yours a more principled uh, rejection of this administrative power or should, is reform what we need? Well, I, I think we, we definitely need the agencies. We need the departments. We've always needed them. That's why one of the very first things the first Congress did was to set up the original, uh, the original cabinet departments. I wouldn't deny that. Laws don't execute themselves. Laws don't administer themselves. You need people to do that, and not just a president and not just a secretary of the treasury, but, a, but an entire bureaucracy. And so I think it's – I think I, I, I would reject the notion that we, should, we can do away with agencies. We should do away with agencies. Uh, we need them. But what we need them to do is to administer or execute laws and policies that Congress, that our elected representatives in Congress actually pass through, 
through legislation. I think that's the key, is, is reinvigorating Congress, uh, reinvigorating Congress's power to actually govern as the first constitutional branch, and to rethink doctrines, especially judicial doctrines, that undermine that by creating the wrong incentives, by empowering uh, agencies and creating more opportunities for agencies to seize power, to be handed power by Congress. I think the courts need to think back about this, uh, think, think back about the problems that these doctrines have created. And I think they also, we also need to think more as a country about how much power we want the president to have over these agencies in terms of, of how the agencies are funded and how much policy discretion they have. A, a lot of conservative critics uh, in the legal field tend to focus on uh, reforming the administrative state from the perspective of the courts, from the legal side. Uh, do you think that any reforms are necessary on the congressional side that go deeper than oversight? So, for example, um, is there something in the way our elected officials are accountable or not accountable to their constituents that uh, inclines them to delegate this kind of power to another branch of government? Is there something, uh, is there a problem lurking there, and is there anything we could do about it? This gets at another question I was hoping to ask you, which is whether this is only a conservative issue. Is there any bipartisan support for regulatory reform, for uh, stronger oversight of administrative agencies? Well, at this moment, I think, by and large, regulatory reform and reform of the administrative estate is, by and large, a Republican issue, a conservative issue. It's largely opposed by Democrats or by progressives. But not exclusively so. Um, just the, uh, a few weeks ago, I was at a book event on Capitol Hill, a very thoughtful uh, progressive law professor, uh, David Schoenbrod, who, who has a new book on, on Congress, uh, the problems of Congress giving away too much power. One of my legal heroes, John Hart Ely, a progressive in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, he rallied against this in a number of books and articles. Um, 
And there's been times over the years where, where Democratic senators, like Senator Bumpers from Arkansas, were at the forefront of proposing regulatory reforms. But, uh, but by and large, I'd say progressives recognize that their interests are best advanced by this, this, this change in our government away from, from the representative institutions of, of Congress um, and the president and the rule of law of the courts and investing that power in agencies. They think it's their best means for achieving progressive policy outcomes. And meanwhile, among conservatives, I think there is real disagreement among some segments of conservatism on what the best way to reform the the administrative state is. Since at least the Reagan administration, really since the Nixon years, uh, there's been a view among many conservatives that the best solutions are found in the executive branch, that the, the best way to reform the agencies is through real management by the president. I'd say that at least in the aftermath of, um, of, of the Obama years and some of its excesses, I think there's some rethink of that and maybe a little bit more openness among conservatives to see Congress taking on a larger role in this. Uh, and then conservatives are also divided a little bit um, on how much power we want the courts to have over the agencies. On the one hand, we want courts affirming the rule of law vindicating the, the rule of law. On the other hand, we don't want courts micromanaging policy decisions by by the agencies, the policy decisions that are better left sort of in hands that are accountable to the president. That really was the origins of Chevron deference. The Supreme Court uh, believed that the courts had too much power over agencies' policy discretion and that we needed to swing the pendulum back in the other direction. So now when we're once again debating Chevron deference, and now it's the Republicans or conservatives who are criticizing it, uh, it suggests that, that they see that the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. What can we expect from President Trump? What have we seen thus far and going forward? Uh, what, might be ex- what might we expect uh, in terms of reforming the administrative state, reigning in presidential power? Well, President Trump's already issued a number of executive orders um, that would reform the way the agencies do their work. Some of them are across the board, sort of across agencies, uh, putting what we call regulatory budget on agencies that would limit their ability to increase the costs that the agencies are imposing upon society, or so-called two-for-one deal by which an agency couldn't promulgate a new rule without getting rid of two old ones. In other ways, the president has targeted specific agencies or specific areas of regulation and sent the agencies back to the drawing board. We've seen this on environmental regulation, on financial regulation, uh, and otherwise. Those are all, I think, very useful steps. But as I've, as I've suggested a few times now, I think the real key is for legislation, for there to be legislative reform that Congress enacts, either targeting a specific agency or area of regulation, whether it's financial regulation or health care or what have you, or uh, Congress passing sort of across-the-board procedural reforms that would change the ways that agencies do business. You know, in the run-up to the election, a number of conservatives argued that by electing President Trump, we would have a real opportunity to restore the, 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 the appropriate um, distance between Congress and the president. Oftentimes, we think that the, 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 the checks and balances that Congress and the president are supposed to present to one another um, are undermined by, by modern uh, party affiliation. Right? Members of Congress who are, say, Republican, identify more closely with a Republican president than they do with their fellow Democratic congressmen. And same for the Democrats who, in Congress who, who, who identified much more closely with President Obama than, say, with, uh, with, with Speaker Boehner. 
Mayor, Speaker Ryan. And so some conservative scholars um, like Charles Kessler and Chris Demuth argued in the Rumsey election and in the aftermath of the election that President Trump's unconventional rise to the presidency might create an opportunity for some more distance between congressional Republicans uh, and, and the Republican presidency, and that members of Congress would start to think of themselves more as, as congressmen first rather than the president's own teammates. Um, we'll see how that bears out. I don't think we've seen much of it yet, but the administration is still new. And if Congress gets its feet under itself and finally starts to press forward with a legislative agenda, agenda on its own, uh, if that happens, we may see this restoration of checks and balances that smart scholars like Demuth and, and Kessler envision. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great note to end on, and I think we'll have to leave it there. But Adam, thank you very much for, for coming on. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for listening. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Joining me next week to discuss the constitutionality of the administrative state is Philip Hamburger, the Maurice and Hilda Friedman Professor of Law at Columbia Law School and author of Is Administrative Law Unlawful? and, more recently, The Administrative Threat. <laughs>